This talk is perhaps the most difficult to give or to understand or to take in that we have in the whole retreat because it comes down to the uh, question of God's only son becoming a man. And therefore, you need to pray very much about this and with the evening free until supper, or except for mass, you might be, find it worthwhile to read some of the texts and try to ask God to increase your faith because this is where faith comes in. We ended the last talk with the pagans of all kinds with great sincerity in many cases and with the light at the end of the tunnel seeing death coming towards them not knowing what was going to happen when this world left them and then all of us longing for something but not knowing what it is. If you want to see that at its perfection you look at Acts 17 where St Paul went to Athens. Here was the most intelligent, sophisticated Ivy League town uh, in the ancient world. And there they had all these gods and goddesses by the hundred and then they suddenly put in an extra god, the unknown god. They made a special statue for him but they were afraid a new god might turn up. And so Paul looking round as he did before he addressed them, he preached on this unknown God. There was the whole of the great Greek world with Plato and Aristotle and the rest, and they were still worried somehow and superstitious and had to have one altar to spare in case another God appeared. I find that scene's always very moving. It's the place where Father Théard de Jardin started his great book, Le Milieu de Vin. Or again, we can think of Marcus Aurelius, not yet emperor, but we, he himself struggling. Or we can think of the Jews and the, all the great religions of the world, all in the same state. I think Cardinal Newman is right for us in telling us to start right at the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel. And you really ought to have the time to read through the St. Luke's Gospel, just noticing one point. Newman's, this is where Newman got his one line of his hymn, in all his words most wonderful, most sure in all his ways. Here we see the certainty of God in a most extraordinary way. How sure God was in the fullness of time, as St. Paul says, and that's a phrase that you can pray about, that when the time was ripe, God moved. And of course, the very first thing he did is the beginning of Luke's gospel. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly class of Abia. His wife was a descendant of Aaron named Elizabeth. Both were just in the eyes of God, blamelessly following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were childless, for Elizabeth was sterile. Moreover, both were advanced in years. Once when it was the turn of Zechariah's class, and he was fulfilling his function as a priest before God, it fell to him by lot, according to priestly usage, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense, while the full assembly of people was praying outside at the incense hour. All very devout. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was deeply disturbed upon seeing him and overcome by fear. Even in the, what we call the joyful mysteries, the first joyful mystery was a matter of terror at start. 
Anybody who meets an angel, I haven't met one yet, but I'd run to the Twin Cities in a second if I saw one coming. Because you're dealing with another world, and suddenly to see this extraordinary thing, Zachary was absolutely scared stiff. And he, in fact, was struck dumb. Such was the fear of the unknown. What's interesting is that Zachary was an old man, and according to the Jewish law, the priests took it in turn, according to their sort of their class in West Point, whatever it was. Uh, when it was their turn, they all went there and they drew lots out of a bag. They had a great bag full of discs, nearly all of which were white, I think, but one was black. And the priest put his hand in and drew out, and whoever got the lot went in and offered incense. Zachary had never drawn the right lot, he'd never been in. But on this day, God was so sure, Zachary didn't cheat, he put his hand in the bag, and I think when God was ready, Zachary drew out the right one. There was a statistician in Washington, in your federal government, who told me if I could find out the number of discs, he'd tell me what the odds were on Zachary getting the right one. But he got it at the right day. And so he went in, and the whole story of the incarnation began. He was scared stiff. He was still dumb when the angel appeared to Mary. Our Blessed Mother there, a girl of 16, and she was scared stiff. Talk about joyful mysteries, they were all scared stiff the whole way through. The, the first, the, the angel said to her, fear not, Mary. Mary was terrified, it's worth reading her beginning too. The Virgin Mary, and upon arriving, the angel said to her, rejoice, O highly favored daughter, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. She was deeply troubled by his words and wondered what his greeting meant. The angel went on to say to her, do not be afraid, Mary. So the, so the abolition of fear began quite early on. Our Blessed Mother suddenly found that she was going to have a child, though not married. How much more she knew, I don't know. But then we've got the same with Christmas. We're always thinking of Christmas as being cheerful, but the shepherds were in a terrible state. There were shepherds on the, in the locality living in the fields and keeping night watch by turn over their flocks. The angel of the Lord appeared to them as the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were very much afraid. The angel said to them, you have nothing to fear. I come to proclaim good news to you, tidings of great joy to be shared by the whole people. So even on Christmas Day, the shepherds were alarmed. And the first act of the Incarnation was to abolish fear. And I believe that extends right down to ourselves, that God so arranged it that while he was all alone, like the Mohammedans and the Jews had him, like this great animal in the Denver Zoo, you're bound to be afraid of God. God did something to make fear not possible anymore. And so suddenly, right down to our own days, we'll be freed from this fear too. But fear is the first word that came to Zachary, to Mary, and to the shepherds. The only chap who wasn't afraid was splendid old Simeon, who turns up just the next, you ought to read him in the presentation. Because Simeon, who was an old, old man and been very faithful, he was charismatic. The Holy Spirit told him to go to the temple that day. And when he saw the baby, he immediately said, now I don't mind dying, my eyes have seen salvation. Now you can dismiss your servant in peace, for you have fulfilled your word. 
My eyes have witnessed your saving deed. That's the new translation. We used to, the old one, I think, was better. But Zeh poor old Simeon, this old, old man, was the first chap who wasn't afraid. Seeing an ordinary baby carried into the temple in his mother's arms, he suddenly found the whole of the Old Testament fulfilled for him. Those of you who are my age, I'm just back down to Zachary now. I'm down to old Simeon. That you, not, not being charismatic, but you feel this is the most glorious moment when an old, old man is told not to be afraid of dying. But then you've got the next joyful mystery, which comes at Mass today, so it's worth watching, and that is the loss in the temple. It's one of the longest stories in the, in the Gospel. It's longer almost than Christmas. It's longer than the institution of the Blessed Eucharist. It's an extraordinary scene, and it does throw a light on what our Blessed Mother thought. Because when he, our Lord was 12 years old, it was customary that he would go up to Jerusalem for the first time with his mother and father. And as we know, when they were going to leave to go home, they didn't find him. He wasn't there. So they'd, And they'd gone two days' journey, I think it was, before they suddenly said, where is he? Now, what's so striking is that Our Lady and St. Joseph didn't look in the right place. You'd have thought they'd have said, oh, he's in the temple for certain. Not a bit of it, he looked just like an ordinary boy. They rushed back and they spent a whole day, they went to the police and they went around to all, where this boy missing? Our Blessed Mother didn't quite understand the whole story then. The odd thing is, the loss in the temple could never have happened again. Jesus, that time, another time, would certainly not have gone missing, and his mother, if he had, would have known where to look. But this time they were caught out, and when they found him there sitting among the, among the doctors, um, Our Lady said, your, my, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. Our Lord did what appears to be something naughty. If any of your children tried that, you'd give them one on the, on the air just disappearing like that, and yet our Lord was God, how could he do a naughty thing? I don't think he knew. He, when he got into the temple, he was overwhelmed by being in his father's house. It's a most extraordinary scene, this, well worth reading and praying about. I have a great sympathy with the whole story because I lost a boy once in London. It was during the war, and we, I had to take my class of revolting kids out for the day because they'd, um, they'd been good or something. We didn't know where to go. And I took them up to London. It was bad enough with the air raids. And uh, we all got onto the underground or subway. Uh, we'd been to go to Westminster Cathedral. And we got on, no, we'd, uh, we got on at Victoria and were going round to Charing Cross, I think, to do something. And when we got to Charing Cross, Christopher Tyler was missing. I hunted everywhere. This filthy little thing had gone. Bad enough losing our own boy, but somebody else's boy is even more serious. I thought of all the insurance we'd have to pay, and God knows what. Well, I didn't know what to do, and I had about 20 kids. We all got back in the train and went back to the Victoria station where we had got on the train. And there was Tyler standing there watching the underground trains come going into the tunnel. I came up behind him and I said, You filthy little thing. And he said, Father, here's one coming now. And the train went whizzing by. and. I couldn't believe that a kid would be so totally absorbed. Then it turned out that he had never seen a train before. He came from Malta. His father was an officer in Malta. And so this was the first time he'd seen a train, and he was so carried away uh, that 
he didn't care that I was in a furious temper. In fact, we had to pull him off backwards. He wanted to see all these trains go whizzing past. Now, the odd thing is that some of the saints had that. Take some Bernadette and Lourdes. She saw the lady. She never said it was our lady. She said, I saw the lady. And she went down there to the grotto by herself, then with four little children. Then eventually she had about 10,000 people with her. She didn't notice them. She knelt there and had a conversation with the lady. And the doctor, who was an unbeliever, took a candle and put it on her hands and burnt her. And she didn't feel that. She was so overwhelmed. Again, another young saint of our Lord's age, <coughs> Saint Dominic Savio, the, the, the Salesian saint, he was about 14 when he was missing from arithmetic class. So even the saints had some sense. <laughs> and, um, and the master sent a note to Don Bosco saying, Dominic's not in class. Don Bosco was one cleverer than Our Lady. He stopped for a minute and then Saint Don Bosco said, oh, I know where he'll be. Don Bosco in Turin went downstairs across the road to the church where the boys went to Mass. And he walked up the aisle, we're told, and when he got to the transept where the boys sat for Mass, there was Dominic Savio standing in the aisle with one foot across the other, in dead silence. And Don Bosco, one saint and another, he didn't know quite what to do, he coughed a bit, and then he sort of touched Dominic Savio on the shoulder and said, uh, uh, Dominic, it's two o'clock. And the little boy came round and said, oh, is Mass finished? He'd been standing there for about eight hours or seven hours. Didn't know. So when our Lord went to the temple with his parents, the funny thing was that he probably didn't know, but coming into his father's house and seeing the Holy of Holies and the temple itself and hearing the doctors speaking about God, for one moment he was outside himself, beyond himself. Now, Our Lady never guessed that. She looked in the wrong place. As I say, after that, it'll never happen again. Our next year, she'd have known. And next year, Our Lord wouldn't have been overcome. But even young as that, a tremendous thing happened to this boy. I like this uh, scene particularly because it says at the end, and Mary kept these things, pondering them in our heart. It's the feast of our Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart today. And what I felt when you have Mass, if she pondered about it, we might ponder. What was it that made this strange scene happen? Did Our Lady really know her son was God? I doubt it. They all knew something. God was quite sure that Zachary would be struck down and that then that he would go and call his baby John and that John the Baptist would be born. He was quite certain that Mary would be told that she would have a child. She certainly was told that. Joseph had a dream telling him to marry Mary even though she was pregnant. We don't know what details were given, but none of them could ever have guessed that the, they didn't know about the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity had not been revealed. All they had was Yahweh. But they all, it was all so cleverly prepared, and then it went on like that. Jesus went home and worked for 30 years, and when God was ready again, the fullness of time, John the Baptist turned up in the desert. Cardinal Newman's great sermon on conscience starts with John the Baptist because John the Baptist was there and the same panic of getting old and fear and conscience 
and guilt complexes, all those things were present in the crowd. The crowd that rushed out to hear John, they came from Jerusalem, all Judea, the whole region around Jordan. They went out to him. The first people who turned up were the Pharisees, and John asked them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? They had a guilty conscience. They came out, they were scared, they knew something was happening. Reform your lives, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John the Baptist said to them. Then we've got the soldiers who were there, they were pagans, most of them. They would have been the centurion, probably, and those very men that there were then there were the um, tax gatherers and the and the civil servants. And then, of course, there were the first apostles. Peter was there, and John was there, and Andrew was there. All because John the Baptist turned up baptizing. And they all rushed out. And I bet you half Athens would have been there if they had a chance. And then this extraordinary thing happened that one day Jesus stood in the line, like you stand in the line for confession. Jesus, at the right moment, moved from Galilee came to the Jordan, stood in line, and met John the Baptist and was baptized. And then was revealed, the first time ever, so nobody had ever guessed it, that the infinite God, Yahweh, uh, was not alone. That he had a private life, not like that th thing in the Denver Zoo, he had a private life, he had love and conversation possible, we, it's, all, it's all we know, there were three persons, not one. And when our Lord stood in the water, you can read it. It's an extraordinary thing. Luke says, when all the people were baptized and Jesus was at prayer, after likewise being baptized, our Lord was praying, the skies opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in visible form like a dove. A voice from heaven was heard saying, you are my beloved son, on you my favor rests. Now we've got, therefore, this was the beginning of the whole story. That when God was ready, John the Baptist came there. What was he trying to do? John the Baptist was there for one reason only, that God had changed all his plans, and God had come down on earth, and he would not give the faith to people who didn't want it. Cardinal Newman says, The Holy Baptist was sent before our Lord to prepare his way. That is, to be his instrument in rousing, warning, humbling, and inflaming the hearts of men, so that when he came, they might believe in him. He himself is the author and finisher of that faith, of which he is also the object, but ordinarily, he does not implant it in a suddenly. But he first creates certain dispositions, and these he carries on to faith in their as their reward. When he was about to appear on earth among his chosen people and to claim for himself their faith, he made use of John, first to create in them the necessary dispositions. And therefore it is that at this season when we are about to celebrate his birth, we commemorate again and again the great saint who was his forerunner as in today's gospel, lest we should forget that without a due preparation of heart, we cannot hope to obtain and keep the all-important gift of faith. John the Baptist was there to create in the crowd the right dispositions 
so that when Jesus appeared, they would suddenly want something from him. He was not going to force, they had to choose. Ever since the incarnation, every human being is free. I can turn away from our Lord, I can do what I like, I have to make the first approach, very different from the Old Testament, where God said to Moses, do this, do that, our Lord never did anywhere in the Gospel. And so that's why I find that it's very important to see Cardinal Newman's distinction. You and I are inclined to say, I've got the faith, he hasn't. Newman goes on in his gracious sermon to say, our Lord never said that. Our Lord said right through, I can't work a miracle here because you haven't got faith, or you only want signs and wonders, so I can't work miracles here at Nazareth because they didn't believe first, he didn't, couldn't work miracles there. On the other hand, with the centurion, he, our Lord said, I've never seen greater faith in Israel. He said to many women, woman, thy faith is great. Where we say there's faith and non-faith, our Lord said there's weak faith and strong faith. And that John the Baptist was put there for that reason. The greatest of all the saints, the last of the Old Testament, the very last patriarch, uh, he was sent there to bridge over so that when God's son appeared, there'd be somebody to introduce him to them, which he did. After the baptism, as we know, um, it comes in John, that after the baptism, uh, John was passing by with Andrew, and John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, and pointed to Jesus. And John and Andrew went along and said to Jesus, where do you live? And he said, come and see. And they went away with Jesus, and John gave up his two best disciples for the founding of the church. So we might then think about those joyful mysteries, and think then also, very importantly, of how God came to change. First, we discovered that he had a private life. Not until the baptism of our Lord did anybody guess that. Nobody knew. No, the Jews never expected the Messiah to be God, ever. None of the Greeks and Romans, they never thought it was possible. In fact, it was repugnant to them. It's interesting that St. Augustine, when he was studying still, when he was about 30, he found the Incarnation repulsive, that God could be so belittle himself as to come down as a man. This idea they all looked look for it, they had no idea. I don't think our Blessed Mother or St. Joseph, any of them had the full until our Lord died on the cross, but until the news of the Holy Trinity, there was no God the Son and there was no Holy Spirit. In the Bible, they talk about the Spirit of God moving in the waters, but nothing like what we mean by the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Trinity was the very first thing. Now, Newman says, and I agree with him, that the Holy Trinity is relatively easy in this way, that it's a complete mystery. All our God told us was there are three persons, and you either say yes or no, that you can't do anything about it, we are told nothing about how they can be three, and all that remains a mystery. Newman has that beautiful description, which you've got in my book there, page 99. Newman says, break a ray of light into its constituent colors. Each is beautiful. 
each may be enjoyed. Attempt to unite them, and perhaps you produce only a dirty white. The pure and indivisible light is seen only by the blessed inhabitants of heaven. Here we have but faint reflections of it as its diffraction supplies, but they are sufficient for faith and devotion. The Holy Trinity, all we can say is, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. All we know for certain is that we're quite right to talk of them as three persons because they appeared three persons at our Lord's baptism. Jesus standing in the water, the Holy Spirit appearing, whether like a parted tongue of fire or a bird, it's hard to say, but the whole crowd knew the heavens opened and the voice was heard, this is my beloved son. Now that's the very first thing that no other religion ever had or guessed or could think of guessing. So Newman is quite clear that the Holy Trinity is, you can just, you just accept it and realize what it means to us that God so loves this world that there were three persons and that he sent one down. Now, when you come to God made man, it's more difficult because our Lord's divinity we can only accept. But now he becomes on our level. We can see a man, we can see what he does. And so in an extraordinary way, uh, the, the divinity of Christ, which is vital to the whole of our church and our faith, we've got to be disposed to say yes. What I find so moving with Newman, and that we'll end on for the moment, and that is, you see, that he reckoned right from the start that holiness was the purpose of the Incarnation, not to forgive our sins. St. Athanasius rightly says that our sins could have been, our fall, the original sin, could have been wiped out without God coming on earth. But what couldn't be done is, God having made man, he then really had to come down to help us and show us how to live. After all, having made all these animals and things, God took a most tremendous risk and created a free person. We are the only creatures. We're above the angels when we're joined to Christ. The only animals can't choose. But you and I have the ability, God took that great risk, I'll make a free person who can turn against me. Now, once he'd done that, then he knew he had to come down because I've got the freedom and I can only be led by love if I've got to see him and love him and say, I want to follow you. Nowhere in the gospel was anybody compelled by God to do anything. So God was such an artist that from, early, from right from the fullness of time, he planned to identify himself with us. He had to come on earth. God so loved the world as to send his son down. And then, to, by eating his flesh to nourish us, and etc., the whole human race will be raised up to be divine, to, be, to share the whole of creation with the Creator. So Newman was thrilled about the whole thing, and he, this is what really made him eventually uh, come into the church. Now, he says that we, when we come to our Lord, we must be very careful we don't really know any details at all. A lot of it is only a mystery. Why did Jesus have to be baptized uh, when our sins were forgiven on Calvary, when he died for us? 
So the baptism wasn't strictly necessary. We are not told. We're only told he was baptized, identified with sinners. Why did our Holy Spirit drive him straight into the desert and there he was tempted? We know hardly anything about the temptations. These things remain a mystery. When we say in the creed he descended into hell, we don't know why or where that was. We only know we're told. Much of our love for our Lord is based on total faith. This is what he said. The only thing we know for certain that was revealed and which is that he came down on earth for our sake. For our sake he came down on earth. He so loved this world and for our sake he died. Mercy is the one thing that our Lord's life reveals, that the infinite God, having made man free, knew that we might take the wrong choice and therefore came down and treated us as free beings. It's the most extraordinary thing. Talk about the shuttle, I feel the same way, that while the rockets wouldn't fire, that was Adam's time, uh, where the whole thing went wrong, God knew that it would go wrong. Once you make a free person, the chances are they will once or twice go wrong, like your own son. You see your children and they disobey you. You can't, if you lock them up or punish them and, and become a tyrant, then you've lost their love and they, they'll never develop. A father with his child has just the same problems God has with us. That he so made us that we took the first step. And that's why John the Baptist was there to help the crowd to take the first step. And the first step was taken by John and Andrew, who said to Jesus, where do you live? And they made the first move, and the church began. So therefore, we'll end on that note for now, and in about five minutes' time after coffee, we, all three of us will go to the confessional.